You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to the Driving Law podcast. It is Friday. And with me is Paul Doroshenko. It's actually Thursday evening. Well, yeah, but the people that are listening are listening on Friday. They're not listening on Thursday. Welcome to everybody Friday, um, Thursday evening. Yes. The sure. um, You had a big day today. I did have a big day today. You I did a lot of things. Took the ferry to um, the island. You yes. had a ticket in Caldwood. Was, I had you to get can... my dad to pick me up from the ferry terminal because Grant Gokatrue, former podcast guest who's not going to get himself invited back after this, uh, abandoned me. He was supposed to be my ride to court and abandoned me at the ferry. And you wanted to come back and you were going to try and get back as quickly as possible and you took the float plane or... Yep, I took the float plane back after court. I resolved the matter, I think, favorably for my client. One of my particularly delightful things about this job is taking the float plane. I like taking the float plane. Mm, you it's wouldn't have fairly... liked it today. No. Well, it was very full. Well, you were flying the one to Vancouver downtown. If you yeah. fly to Richmond, it's usually, I mean, it may be full, but you know, often you can end up sitting close to the front or right up front. You can sit up with the pilot and the view is incredible and you think to yourself how lucky you are yes. to live in this part of the world and have the uh luxurious thing that part of your job is that you can you know fly on the float plane to go to court but you don't think that if the person next to you on the float plane is reading a book with his arms spread from his sides and really bad bo and also as you know the seats are very small so when you spread your arms from your sides you force somebody with a back injury to angle their body so that you don't touch them so then you're you're in pain and who then thinks because the float plane's so loud it's totally cool to just pass gas but doesn't realize that i can smell that over the smell of his disgusting bo well, um, I feel for you. I usually pay the extra $35 to get the one reserved seat. But when you show up early from your reservation, you don't have that luxury. Okay. So, that is... That what, was my did you go on an earlier? Did you go on an yeah. earlier flight? No, yeah, cool. I, I switched to an earlier well, one because I finished it. Well, now there's earlier. your problem. Yes. That'll learn I you. tried to get back to get some work done today. Yeah. Well, you could always work at the float plane terminal. Anyway... So enough of your, well, that was a float plane excitement for you today. That I didn't even know, nobody here knew you, where you were. It was in the calendar. I'm sure it was, but nobody here knew where you were. Well, that's too bad. Anyway, this is the Driving Law podcast, not the Kylo's griping podcast. That, that comes out float. every Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was actually wondering if you, if you actually did have another podcast that I didn't know about. I could have another podcast, Kylo's Griping. It would be a long podcast. So I don't know if we talked about this on the last time. Um, we were in, did I, we talk about the badass? Yes, yes, you told everybody about that. Okay. You humiliated me to the audience of okay. our podcast. Well, we're back in Canada and it's, uh, you know, back to our real lives now. And um, yeah. you uh, may feel like less of a badass. I don't know, but um, I, I don't feel maybe like less of a badass. I was in court this week. I came back. We got back Sunday night, came back um, Monday morning. I was in court arguing a judicial review. And actually, you know what? I got to say, um, getting that badass award, as like silly as it sounds, 
actually made me feel more confident in court. Huh. Yeah. Well, there you go. But you already have plenty of confidence. You're not I did, sure. But I was, I was, I was really on in my arguments. Mm-hmm. I was feeling good that day. I'm sure you were. Yeah. So what are we going to talk about? Well, the first thing I want to talk about is something that's got a lot of people feeling down, and that's the insurance rate increases for people on the basis of their driving history or absence thereof. Basically, so, that they haven't got a history driving, and therefore they're paying a. Yeah, I mean, there were two stories this week involving two young people, both of whom were bought their first cars, were insuring their cars for the very first time, and, um, you know, like 16, 17-year-old people, and they were assessed insurance rates for one year of insurance over $5,000. No, I'm assuming, you know, being in Vancouver, that they were probably like, their first car was a Maserati or something. No, 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 no. These are humble people with like Toyota Corollas, Kia Rios, Honda Civics. Hmm. Actually, I think I read about it. It was a Nissan Altima. And the first thing I thought was that, that they could charge that higher rate just because most Nissan Altimas are driven by people who are Daladopers. Yeah, but... These people are obviously not dial-a-dopers. Yeah, in any event. It was a lot of money. It was a lot, but, a lot. But I'll tell you, I think back to like a long time ago when I was 16, mm-hmm. 35 years ago, and I insured my first car, mm-hmm. and it was like $1,600 a year, and that was just collision insurance. And like it was a, over $100 a month. It was like $200 a month I had to pay. Um, <clears throat> I had to pay it off before the year. But the, um, that was ridiculous. Like, I couldn't believe how much money I was paying then. But if you factor in inflation, 5300 bucks is probably pretty fair. It's not fair. I, I think back to when I was 16 with my first car, and it was like $800 to insure it. No collision, because um, it was some old crappy... You got... I had a, like a, a beginning Honda Civic, and I was paying more than twice that. Yeah, and we're talking were decades before you. You were in Alberta. It's different. I was in British Columbia, so I'm actually an accurate comparator. Huh. And it was $800, and I had to scrimp and save in order to pay for it. Hmm. Yes. Well, to me, you know, I know it's expensive to have a car. You're, you're, you pose a risk. Yeah. Um, I get that. Yeah. So I don't, I, I mean, I expect it to be expensive. Yeah, it's it. Just, it's fair for it to be expensive. What but gets me 5, is what I have thousand dollars. <laughs> Look, do you have five thousand dollars just like lying around to pay for insurance that I, you're not expecting to have to pay? Are you kidding? I'm flat broke. Yeah, exactly. And that's you, an adult with a job. Hmm. This is a child who maybe has part time work, and and they make a good point. You know, they say the whole point of the insurance system and charging higher rates to people without any driving experience is to reward people for having good driving experience. But you don't get good driving experience by not being able to drive because you can't insure your car. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a disincentive. It's a discouragement factor. It costs money to have a car. This is, they're factoring in the risk. They're coming up with a, with a, you know, calculated amount based on the risk. And it's young people disproportionately cause accidents um, yes. and that's unfortunate uh, but they are at higher risk yeah I get that but you're you know if you took somebody if you took a 16 year old you get them your, their driver's license they get rid of their N they get their class 5 after the you know after the requisite period of time has passed 
And then after that, other than their test to get their N and then their test to get their class five, they never drive a single day in their lives in 10 years with actually not having any driving experience, they will get the same rate that somebody who drives every day gets. How does that make any sense? You're not thinking of that one precise example that you're coming up with. First of all, that precise example is probably extremely rare. No, but I'm just saying- you know, That you know, might be a one out of a thousand person. Um, so, you know, to me, they're calculating in the risk. I think it's too much money. I feel sorry for people. Uh, you know, who are facing that, but the reality is that's what it costs. And you have an accident and you cause injury, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars are often paid out. And it may be, you know, one out of, or two out of 50 young people who have an accident like that, but then you factor it in and you know, this, this is an insurance company, it is insurance. Insurance is not cheap, it is a, it is a gamble, uh, you know, against a risk and it costs money. And I, you know, I, I'm, I think it's too much money. It hurts me to hear it. I feel the pain of this person trying to figure out how to pay that. And it, particularly when you think about, you know, this was a, apparently an affluent enough family that they could afford to pay yeah, for it for their child. For them. I know. My and parents about, would have been like, guess you're not driving. Well, sure. You know, I was flat broke and I wouldn't have been able to drive. And that's basically what it would have come down to. Um, and, um, you know, but there is no like, constitutional right to drive just like there's no constitutional right to insure you know we don't have we have universal health care but oh, we don't have universal but Paul, where were you last week in the podcast don't you remember the inspiring lecture that we got at the DYDLA seminar that said just because the constitution says something now doesn't mean it has to still say that. So you think the uh, the Charter of Rights is going to come out and uh, in favor of the universal right to insure? Uh, I think that it's discriminatory based on age. Okay. Well, it is discriminatory based on age. And I seem to recall at some point that that was litigated before I was a lawyer and it was determined that it was not an unreasonable thing to do. Uh-huh. So was prostitution. So was assisted dying. So was the right of Trinity Western University to have a discriminatory policy on campus. But all of those things were relitigated and redecided at the Supreme Court of Canada. So why is this constitutional issue not something that could be relitigated? Well, I learned today that if you come from another province and you've got, you know, the same number of years accident free as you do have accident free in BC, you're treated differently. Um, you're paying more money. When you say move here from Alberta, you might have 15 years accident free. BC, you have 15 years accident fee free. But instead, because you are new to BC, you're paying more insurance. Yes. And to me, that is a mobility rights issue. Somebody and did. If you want a constitutional. Very argument, recently, challenged that on a mobility rights argument, and they were unsuccessful. Well, there but you that go. That was in the last six months. We even talked about that on this podcast. Did we? Yeah. Yes. How quickly you forget. Well, you know, I deal with a lot of things. <laughs> but look, it's not just these these teenagers that are getting screwed. I've been screwed by ICBC because of this. And wrongfully so. I know, you're very upset about it. I am very upset about this. And, and, you know. But I'm the one who paid so far. So far, but I'm going to have to pay when it comes time for my policy to be renewed. Well, we'll see. And so 
we was... talked about this on the podcast. Did we? Yes. Oh, well, how quickly I forget. Exactly. The point is that there's lots of people that are getting railroaded by this by these changes and David Eby was confronted with this in some interviews recently and his response was effectively well you know there's some kinks and I don't think it's right and we're gonna have to work it out good answer good answer but I mean honestly I would rather him say yeah that's not right and that's not what I had envisioned and I don't want to make it prohibitive for young people to learn how to drive much less learn how to drive safely because if they do just wait it out they're not going to develop good driving habits in the time period where they're supposed to be learning they're instead going to develop irritation with the system I think there should be nerf training cars nerf training cars nothing that's got more than 40 horsepower okay and um it's basically um you know mostly made out of foam all right and uh, young people could drive them around it'd be stigmatizing but they could learn the rules of the road and chances are they wouldn't hurt themselves or anybody else very severely fair enough okay um there is no uh good transition into our next topic but i will try anyway actually i lied i do have a smooth transition into our next topic but i'm going to switch the topic order around and you want nerf training cars well let me tell you about our ridiculous driver of the week okay go ahead our ridiculous driver of the week this week is not a civilian driver but a police driver. We had a police driver recently. We had yes, another one. Yes, but this one's better. Uh, so in- we had those police officers. That police officer on his motorcycle, the stunting thing, the two motorcycles together. Yes, that yes. was awful. Yes. Well, we have another ridiculous police driver of the week. Same guy. No, no. This is in California, where the California police have been experimenting with a electric vehicles in their police fleet. So rather than driving around in, you know, regular old police cars, they've been driving around in police Teslas. Oh my goodness. It's like a it's like a, such a California thing, right? Yeah. Well, we we saw very few Teslas in yeah, San Diego. In San Diego. If we'd been in like LA or in San Francisco, we would have seen Teslas everywhere. Okay. Fair enough. Um so on Nissan Altima is where we were. Yeah, well, you know, that's how you afford to live in San Diego. Dial it open. <laughs> uh, sorry, it's a running joke in our office that Nissan Altimas are owned by dial The irony of the joke being that the the articled student that trained me, Sarah Lemoyne, yeah. um, drove a Nissan Altima. And it looked just like a dial it I know. Nissan she like pulled she up inherited to... it from her father. Her father gave it to her. Was he a dial it No. He okay. just had bought a Nissan Altima. It was a quality car. Fair enough. Um, anyway, so the uh, uh, so the police have these Teslas, and they've been working out great, except for recently, when a high speed police chase took place, and the police ultimately had to call off the chase because they'd used so much of the battery power in their cars they couldn't keep going. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Well, that happens too. You could run out of gas. Yeah, but you know how long you would have to be driving to run out of gas versus how like long you'd have to be driving at high speeds to run out of battery power in a Tesla? I have no idea how long you can drive high speeds in a Tesla. It's a lot less, right? You don't yeah. get the same range on the battery as you do on a, a tank of gas. 
Okay. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, an electric car, you're pushing it down. It's going to use more, more, exactly. more electricity. And plus, they're also drawing from the battery to operate all of the equipment that you're going to use in a high-speed chase. Your radio, your your whoopee lights. <laughs> I don't know why I called them that. but Emergency equipment. Yeah, emergency equipment. You've got all of that going on, which is also drawing from the battery. I don't know how they didn't think this through. So, I wonder what happens with a Tesla when you get low. Does it slow down a lot? Does it... Like, does it just die on the roadside or does it, like, does it recognize that you're running out of juice and then, you know, like throttle it back to yeah, 30 no kilometers point. an hour or something? You think, well, Elon Musk, if you're listening, uh, just send us a, a, like a quick email. Yeah. Direct message on Twitter, Instagram message, whatever. Something. Yeah. Let yeah, us know how that works. Let us know how it all We should know that by now. We live in Vancouver. They're like dime a dozen. Yeah. So many of them here. Um... Anyway, so that was the ridiculous driver of the week. The police not thinking through the consequences of high-speed chases in Usually Teslas. the ridiculous driver of the week involves like somebody from Florida and maybe a drive-through. Well, um, I thought I'd spice it up. I know. No, that's good. A very like Silicon little, Valley. Little, little different. Little different, yeah. Um, California, you know, tie after we come back from California. And right. Spending our week back here. My skin is still peeling from the sunburn I got. I did like promise that I would update the podcast this week with some of the more cool information that we learned, but the only thing that we learned um, that has really stuck with me is the one thing I don't want to say, which is like the best cross-examination strategy. I There's think. A, a few questions that we got there that yeah. were, made it worthwhile. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, um, we I'm going to do that. <laughs> Yeah, we had a discussion before the conference even started with Chuck Rathburn. Did we mention that? We did talk about that, yeah. And that was good. And that will be an interesting thing as it plays out. Already come up. Sitting down and, I know, it came up today. And sitting down and, um, today being Thursday, um, sitting down and uh, calculating the amount of of alcohol that a fuel cell actually has to get a reading. Mm -hmm. Um, Those calculations from Jan Semenov were fascinating. I don't know why I'm, I've seen him give that presentation with those calculations before and it didn't click in my head. I've seen him give that part of that. Yeah. And this time I'm sitting there going, oh, fuck. Oh, shit. Why haven't we argued it that way all of this time? Because that's a major concern. Um, there's a really great part of Jan Semenov's and it was the last, the last presentation of the conference. A great part of that presentation that he gives on errors in breath alcohol testing where he talks about how breath alcohol instruments effectively measure that something's alcohol. And they draw like a pattern. And they say, this pattern looks like ethanol. And so if I see this this line, I'm going to know it's ethanol and not anything else. But the problem is, there are lots of things that can look like ethanol that aren't ethanol. They can make a line that looks the same. And he does this this great thing where he does a, a silhouette of a skyline and there's no, you know, it's just a bunch of buildings. And he says, what skyline is this? And everyone in the audience is looking at the skyline going, I don't know, couldn't tell you, it could be any city. And then he moves the, the silhouette over a little bit so you can see a little bit more of the skyline. And all of a sudden you can see the Statue of Liberty. And you think, oh, well, I recognize that Statue of Liberty and now I see a skyline and I see the Statue of Liberty. 
It's New it York. It all makes sense. It all makes sense. It's New York. I know this one. I got it. And then he takes it out of the silhouette mode. And it's not New York. It's Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, and we end up looking at uh, graphs and charts mm -hmm. often, particularly when we did our blood course. Yep. Um, and um, trying to make a determination on what this instrument has identified. And... Um, and when it's blood testing and it's a gas chromatograph, it's when it comes through. So when that substance shows up after you, you know, it's gone through the tube and, and it's been burnt um, and what has been observed when, and it's a, an issue of timing. And if your standard isn't right, your timing, you're going to come out with, you know, an assumption that it is a certain substance and it's not necessarily going to be that substance, but Yes, it yeah. eludes over a certain period of time. I like that word, elude. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, that was a good um, a good presentation. The nice thing about his presentation is it sticks really to the facts. So Yeah, it sticks to the facts, but it also explains it in, in ways that I think make a lot of sense. You know, his one gram of alcohol and, and all of that. You know, everybody can picture a gram. Yeah, he breaks it down in ways that make sense. Yeah. Anyway, next topic. We've done next the Ridiculous topic. Driver. We've done your... Your, yes. your hate on for ICBC. Hate on for ICBC right now. And uh, speaking of things that we hate, immediate roadside prohibitions. Really? We're there talking about that? There have been some developments. Oh, what? Well, there was a recent case came out today, uh, a case called Kirby. And I know that you secretly inside are gleeful at the name for reasons we don't need to get into on the podcast. <laughs> uh, Kirby and British Columbia Superintendent of Motor Vehicles decision of Madam Justice Matthews and this case is fascinating because it deals with a few things that we see often that we that frustrate us often so one of them is this issue of what happens in refusal cases where the person says I was trying my best to blow and for reasons unknown to me that I cannot name my my breath sample didn't register. And the court uh, considers the adjudicators dealing with Mr. Kirby's evidence. So essentially Mr. Kirby had put in this affidavit saying, you know, I was doing everything I could. Um, the officer was shorter than me. I had to tilt my head down to blow, but you know, tilting my neck that way wasn't obstructing my airflow. Meanwhile, the officer's like, he was tilting his head so that he cut off his airflow. And also, like, for all of you listening, and Paul, you can do this too. I already did it while I was reading the judgment. Try and, like, tilt your head down and see if it stops you from being able to blow. Like, I can still blow. I'm talking right now, producing all the air required to record this. I just tried it. I just tried it. It works just fine. You can't cut off your oxygen flow by moving your neck a certain way. If that was the case... I think the judge was going into the back during the course of the hearing and... Probably, Probably. Yeah. I would be, yeah. but like, I mean, if that was the case, honestly, like we as a species would not have survived. Like we'd fall asleep. Sure. So the adjudicator accepted that the he adjudicator was accepted that. Yeah, he said, "Well, you know, I don't find your evidence believable because the officer was giving you direction and you weren't following it." Without oh. recognizing, of course, that that was in dispute. Mm -hmm. Without recognizing that uh, that his believability wasn't based on what the officer said. Right. So like classic examples of applying a baseline of police competence and reliability. And I liked that the decision quoted from my case of Lemieux, where uh, there was differential treatment given to the evidence of the officer as 
as opposed to the evidence of my client. That made me happy to see that applied with approval. But it also got into this issue of intention and proof of when the device was functioning correctly. So you remember the case that Brandon argued where Shusky, where I had done the hearing and then Brandon did the judicial review? Yes. And in where Shusky, uh, there was the officer just recorded that the result was insufficient flow each time without describing what Mr. Shusky exactly. had done. Yeah. And the um, uh, Justice Smith said, you know, a, an allegation of deliberate refusal can be based on either uh, status messages showing one of the, the four unsuccessful attempts to provide a sample or a police officer's direct observations of the driver's blowing behavior or both. And so in this case, there was no status messages. This case, Kirby dealt with the direct observations of the driver's blowing behavior. But because those were put in issue by the driver who disputed them, the adjudicator was not only required to make a credibility determination, but according to Kirby, also required to consider the impact of the missing information related to the functionality of the ASD. Mm -hmm. Because other than the officer having the form, which was pre-printed to say that it was an Alka-Sensor FST, there was no evidence from him that it was an approved screening device. The adjudicator didn't consider that. The adjudicator's like, well, he it's pre-printed that it was an Alka-Sensor FST, and also, it doesn't make sense that it wouldn't have been an Alka-Sensor FST because what else would he use? Like, okay, well, well what else would he use? We've seen police officers give descriptions of devices that didn't yep. weren't consistent with an Alka-Sensor FST. So, uh, I mean, that was obviously sort of a flaw. Um, and then uh, the absence of any status messages. When Mr. Kirby was saying, you know, I'm trying my best to blow, I'm doing everything that I can to produce a sample. And the adjudicator essentially using this, what the court characterizes as circular reasoning, relying on the fact that the officer said that he wasn't following directions to conclude that the device was giving proper status messages when there was no evidence of what those status messages were. Well, it's the circular reasoning we see in these cases where there seems to be an active attempt to uphold the, the um, driving prohibition when the evidence uh, before the adjudicator, you can't resolve it. Yes. Um, so I'll read you some choice paragraphs because I think this is a fantastic judgment that actually advances things a lot for people on the refusal okay. section. So here, uh, the adjudicator's acceptance of acting Corporal Beaulieu's evidence that Mr. Kirby deliberately failed to comply with his instructions on how to blow led in turn to her circular and conclusory finding that he did not follow the instructions because if he had, one of the five attempts would have resulted in a reading. So she says... Clearly, because it doesn't result in a reading, then he must have not been following the directions because if he'd been following the directions, he would have produced a reading, which calls into question exactly this thing about the functionality of the device. Um, and uh, the, But the court goes one case uh, or one step further and essentially connects these two issues. So at the very end, after the court reviews all of these these cases about intention and about uh, about functionality, uh, the court connects the credibility determination to the functionality determination and says that the two are essentially intrinsically linked, um, uh, noting that uh, there is no evidence 
of any readings from the device. Accordingly, the flaws in the reasoning pertaining to the failure to undertake a credibility and reliability analysis of acting Corporal Beaulieu's evidence, the lack of transparency in the reasons about Mr. Kirby's credibility due to the unstated inference, the illogical finding that the device was an approved device, and the failure to identify reliable evidence that the device was working all lead to her conclusion that Mr. Kirby did not follow acting Corporal Beaulieu's instructions because if he had, one of his attempts would have provided a suitable sample. Considering the reasons as a whole, the adjudicator committed manifest errors that were fundamental to the outcome. Well, there you go. Yeah, so this is actually like a huge leap forward um, in IRP cases for people who failed to provide a suitable sample. Of course, like it'll it, be appealed now. Maybe, maybe not. It, it's a, it's a well reasoned, thorough decision. And uh, like, what's the standard on appeal? It's it's a correctness standard. Um, and yes, deference is owed to the original decision maker. But like, when you're looking at the correctness standard, did the chambers judge identify the applicable law? Did she apply it correctly? Well. Well, you're you're making a face at me. Oh, that's my my court of appeal face. That's your court of appeal face. You know what well, happens. No wonder you don't win at the court of appeal. You no. make that face the no, whole time. No, <laughs> it's my face of you know what happens at the court of appeal. No, but but how can they get around it on just like applying a purely legal search for a legal error in her judgment standard? There isn't one. She goes through the case law. She cites Scott. Court of Appeal decision, Kenyon, Court of Appeal decision, Rangi cited with approval by a Court of Appeal decision, White, Court of Appeal decision, um, Mackenzie and Maines, um, she cites uh, she cites Lemieux, uh, which was not appealed by the superintendent and the Lemieux, the other findings in Lemieux were upheld. She cites uh, Pavlovsky, which was overturned by the Court of Appeal on different grounds and specifically notes that, which I think is fantastic. She's got all of the case law in this judgment that supports every finding that she makes. She does a thorough analysis of all of the case law. It's, an, in my opinion, an unassailable, unappealable judgment because it does that thorough, clear analysis grounded in binding case law. So we will see. We will see whether or not the circular reasoning ends. Yes, I hope that the circular reasoning ends because we see too often these cases where they're like, well, I don't find you were you were complying with the demand because if you were complying with the demand, you would have refused. And to make a circular podcast, going back to one of the things that we discussed at the beginning, um, one of the issues in my judicial review that I argued on Monday and, and judgment's been reserved, so uh, we don't, you know, we don't have a decision yet. Um, but one of the issues was this, it was a refusal case where the officer had said the result of the test was insuff flow. Mm -hmm. Those are the words he used in his report. And um, the client provided an affidavit to say, I was doing my best to blow. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't working. I think the device was malfunctioning. I don't know what was going on. And the argument in the hearing was insuff flow is not a status message. He's saying he's trying his best. Clearly, it's not working based on the officer's evidence. And the adjudicator said, well, I don't believe that it said in stuff flow because you didn't say that it said that. And so because you didn't confirm what the officer said, I can find that there's a different sequence of events. And I think this judgment is, is sort of relevant to that issue. 
Well, you should be going back into court with this judgment to argue it. You send a letter through the registry. It's, yeah, there's a process for that. Right, do you want to go back and explain why this judgment No, you can send a letter through the registry. Just to provide the decision. To provide the decision. Yeah. And the judge will read it. Well, that's what more can you ask for? What more can you ask for than a judge that reads the law? <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, the let's spend a minute talking about the issue that I argued on Monday, since we're on the topic of IRPs. One thing that we've been seeing often in IRP cases is police officers not swearing their reports correctly. Whether it's the officer signs it and no commissioner signs it, or it's got an error where it says there are attachments, but the attachments don't exist at the time it's signed, or the officers put a time and a date on their signature, and the time and the date is, like, it means that they would have had to type their five-page narrative in three and a half minutes. All this of these week, problems. This week I've seen um, two where it purports to provide a certain number of pages and it's very clear that there's a number of pages missing. I had mm -hmm. one today where there was absolutely relevant documents. One of them was given to my client and it was not submitted to the superintendent. Uh, and uh, then I've seen so many overwrites after the fact mm -hmm. on important documents. Yep. So amending them after they're sworn. I have one coming up tomorrow where the officer initially gave my client a different type of prohibition altogether that he couldn't give him on the basis of ASD results, then the day later realizes his error, phones my client, says, uh, I'm going to cancel that thing I gave you, i got to give you some new paperwork, gets his buddy to go down and serve my client at his house with the new paperwork, then submits his report to the superintendent with his narrative where he describes in detail how he served my client with the IRP document roadside, even though the certificate of service that he submitted is signed by a different officer on a, on a different day. day. Like just, just straight up completely perjures himself. It's unfortunate. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it, it, that, I've seen that officer a couple times now. I think it's actually inc incompetence. The, um, I conducted a hearing today on one with a police officer who is causing me grave concern. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's an officer I've been, had grave concern about for 18 months. Mm -hmm. And uh, I raise these concerns and I, you know, each time I have a hearing and I think to myself that I should be submitting all of the other reports, but usually it's clear on the face of it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, was, was it clear today, Paul? It was clear on the face of it today. Yes. Well, what happened? Well, I'm sure it will be a revocation. But the, uh, um, you know, I conducted the hearing. But you know, I get all excited and frothy uh, <laughs> during during the hearings and 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 upset. I mean, it, it actually upsets me because, like, okay, so we had this case. Uh, Matt Nathanson argued recently um, where uh, it was a civil forfeiture case. Mm. And the police officer who made the application for civil forfeiture, we're talking millions of dollars here. And this was in like a money laundering, nightmarish money laundering yep, just situation. Like just a fridge. Yeah. And now that money's like perfectly laundered because it's um, nice big government it's come check. back from the government. But um, so it was seized in the civil forfeiture and the police officer misled the 
misled the tribunal in in his uh, affidavit in his application to get it, mm-hmm. and um, the court wanted to distance itself from that. And that's lovely that the court wanted to distance itself uh, from that uh, big money thing. Um, the uh, it never feels the same quite the same way when you're dealing with an IRP and you've got a police officer who's doing this, and we're dealing with that fairly regularly, um, which kind of feels like the little guy doesn't get a break, but the um, the big money launderer does. But in any event, it comes down to the issue of this obligation on police officers in a in a application that they're making on their own. So an IRP is the same as an ex parte application where you go into court and ask for a remedy from the court. They are starting the whole process, issuing the person a driving prohibition. Same with an ADP. Issuing the person a driving prohibition, all on the basis of their own assertion. And then they are supposed to provide full and complete evidence, a full and, yep. and truthful full account. And frank disclosure. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and they should be conceding, you know, problems with the case in their evidence. They should be telling you the good and the bad, everything, so the tribunal can know. Because you have to know there's going to be people who, you know, foolishly, in my view, don't dispute them. Mm-hmm. And they end up stuck with it. And they have no idea whether or not the police officer has complied with the law, whether or not the police officer has given a truthful account to the tribunal. And it comes down to that same, I mean, it's a, it's a, the, the one check on this is this tribunal. The one check on the police officers in these circumstances is this tribunal. And it makes me, I'm getting frothy again. You're getting frothy. So the issue that I argued on Monday, and we'll have a decision about soon, I hope, um, has to do with what happens when an officer doesn't swear their report properly and then tries to correct it by sending in a supplemental to file report to superintendent saying, I didn't swear it properly. Is that supplemental to file document sufficient to constitute a report in the form established by the superintendent pursuant to the provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act? And does sending in a supplemental to file that attaches the original documents necessarily mean that the officer is swearing to the truth of them or merely attaching them as a basis for his belief that he didn't do it properly the first time. That'll be an interesting one, and it's one yeah. you and I have talked about before. Yeah, it's um, one that's Because we've seen it a few times. Going on a while, and of course, you know, as usual in these, these types of things, the floodgates issue came up. How many of them are out How there? How many are out there? Yeah, judges are always asking you that, and I always think that's inappropriate for them to ask that, because that's not a consideration. They are not... Uh, this is not a policy court. No, this is a superior I'm, court. And they it's not, I think it's an inappropriate question. I don't think they should ask well, you Well, the judge, you know, the judge did say, I'm not going to base my decision on, on how many I know, but we've been asked that numerous times. Yeah. And I just, I, to me, every time I'm thinking to myself, this is not, that is not your issue. Your issue is justice in this particular case and in the scheme and not to consider whether or not there's 50 or 100 or 200 of these others out there. But there's a few of them out there. There's no doubt. We've yeah, got... there's a few. But it's not a lot. No. Um, there are lots that haven't been filed where people haven't succeeded on that argument, but they didn't want to appeal it. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. The um, I've seen that supplemental report so many times where the supplemental mm-hmm. report is, is, wrong. is correcting something that is that they're wrong in their correction. Yeah. And they don't correct the thing that's actually wrong in the 
well, original the, report. The so fact, that's a sort of a... There's, there's two files before the court. One is a fact pattern where the officer goes through a number of errors in the original report and says, um, you know, this is this is wrong and I should say this and I didn't swear it correctly because the commissioner didn't sign and also this document says this when it shouldn't say this. So you have this one example where the officer's actually, you can tell he's turned his mind to the truthfulness of everything. Then the other one that's before the court is one where the officer says, original jurette not properly sworn has now been resworn I and it it's not. We had, we had <laughs> it's another, not we had another one of that, with that recently. Yeah. yeah. So it's just not true. And you're like, okay, that's, you know, so you've got, we have two exemplars of, of sort of the boundaries of this issue. Well, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yes. But uh, we will get a judgment when we get a judgment. And uh, we will update you when we get the judgment on the Driving Law Podcast. Well, we'll contact our clients. Yeah. We'll let them know first. Who are affected by it. Yeah, and then we'll update you on the Driving Law podcast. Well, we'll see. We might be doing it at the same time. It might be the same day. We might phone our clients live on the podcast. I think that's inappropriate. No. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Can't do that anymore. <laughs> she never could do that. Yeah. Did you see the, um, there was a uh, Jeremy Nuttall, um, this is really not Driving Law, Jeremy okay. Nuttall, uh, article from 2012 where Jody Wilson-Raybould was um, criticizing SNC for their involvement in in building dams in British Columbia. This is long before she had her job. Oh, yeah. And I had no idea that she had, you know, some uh, previous issue. And I'm more concerned about her recent interview where she's like, I'll, I'm willing to work with whatever government is in power. Like, oh, Okay. So, like, mm. you keep saying you joined the Liberal Party because it aligns most closely with your values and you want someone who's aligned with your values, but you actually don't care. Yeah, now you'll join the Conservatives. You'll join the Conservatives. Oops. Okay, all right. Anyway, anyway that's, that's off topic. Not, that's not driving law. That's driving, the political podcast. The political that's podcast. That's on Tuesdays. No, that's, uh, I think, the uh, the docket with Michael Spratt and Emily Tamman. Do they discuss political things on there? They do well? discuss political do things on yeah. there. And em Emily is running for the Ottawa Centre NDP seat. I know. So if you are a voter in Ottawa Centre, um, she's up Check against... Her Check her out. She's up against McKenna. So tough race. Maybe not a tough race. McKenna might be able to lock it down. She's very well liked. No, I mean a tough race for Emily. No, it could be a tough race for Emily. Yeah. But Emily is uh, also, you know, up for a fight, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway, that is the Driving Law Podcast. If you need to reach us to talk about any IRP or driving-related issues, give us a call, 604-685-8889, or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.